Hi friends, welcome back to the 100 Days of Enneagram Project. Uh, now the 100 Days of Enneagram Podcast. If you'd like to listen to it on Apple Podcasts or uh, one of your other podcast apps, it is uh, available now in a lot of those places. The, the whole backlog from day one and the remaining days uh, from today through 100 will be available in that podcast form as well as on my website uh, as it has been. Like many things in 2020, this project has gotten a bit disrupted um, by all of the 2020 things uh, that have happened and continue to happen. So obviously this did not get done in 100 consecutive days as was uh, the original intent, uh, but it will get done uh, by the end of the calendar year. And so we're jumping back in today with something I'm really excited to share with you. It's actually our first conversational episode, uh, and I am talking with my good friend, Sam Greenberg. Sam is an Enneagram Type 5, and she and I met last year while we were doing our training with the Enneagram in the narrative tradition. And Sam is actually known these days as the Enneagram Sexpert. So now that your curiosity is sufficiently piqued, uh, I won't take up any more of our time here, and we'll just get into this conversation with Sam. Uh, you'll you'll learn why she's uh, called the Enneagram Sexpert, and we'll talk generally, of course, about being a five and how Sam experiences that fiveness at play uh, in the context of creativity as a part of this creativity series uh, that we are in the midst of. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Sam Greenberg. All right. Hi, Sam, and welcome to the 100 Days of Enneagram Project. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you here. This is the first official um, conversation or interview or voice other than mine on the 100 Day Project, and I just am so glad it's you. Oh my goodness, I'm so honored. Um, so I just, I can't wait. I feel like every time we talk, I learn um, new and important things. And to get to share that experience with others is equally exciting. But um, just to start off, what do you want folks listening to know about who you are and what you do? Sure. So um, my sort of epithet that I'm using to describe myself is the Enneagram sexpert. Nice. <laughs> and that's a little bit of a misnomer, actually, because there's no one who is an expert on the Enneagram and sex yet, because um, very little to no work has been done on that. So I'm a researcher, I'm a PhD student, and my research is on the Enneagram and sex, the Enneagram and sexual desire. And I, um, that's my big passion, and I, I work on that essentially all the time, um, discovering data about how the types engage in sexuality. It's super exciting. Oh, so, so interesting. And, and how do you identify as far as Enneagram type? I identify as a type 5 with a four-wing and a dominant sexual subtype. Thank you. Love it. Yeah. And uh, folks listening may or may not know, I am almost that, but with the, the core type and wing in reverse. So a, a four with a five wing. 
and that sexual or one-to-one dominant instinct. So we're compliments. Such perfect compliments. I still can't quite get over how perfectly that fits together. I <laughs> the, the strange but helpful metaphor in my mind is still like if you put me and my husband Kirk who's also your same um type structure in a blender that Sam would come out. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> and maybe vice versa too. Like if you put the two of you in a blender, I would I don't I don't know. It's <laughs> it gets strange, but uh but compliments, yes, is a perfect way to describe that. And we met um in our training with the narrative Enneagram. So that is that is your background of training, although, of course, you've studied other schools of thought as well, right? Yeah, I did about 10, 11 years of self-study, like in-depth self-study um, before mm-hmm. I did the training with the narrative tradition. And then obviously we met um, doing the narrative and then I have my sort of um, formal academic um, look into the research that does exist on the Enneagram. Right. Uh, and I will tell everybody that it, you know, it was only a week and a half or two weeks into being friends with Sam that I finally found out she was working on a dissertation on the Enneagram. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, humble in the expertise that you have, I'd say. Um, but let's let's get into just conversation around this experience of being a five. And I just I wonder what you appreciate or enjoy about your fiveness these days, and if you might have some thoughts on that. Sure. Um, so I'd say what I appreciate most about being a five, and it definitely has changed over time, is the way that I can sort of see and understand things um, in a way that seems different than other types. And that has to do with the observer thing. So without trying, I'm observing, you know, life, people, events all the time. And because of that, I have just this wealth of data kind of floating around in my mind. And I'm able to draw from that and and make kind of create these um, theories or understanding of patterns. And my particular interest is in people, the Enneagram and in psychology. So um, those things tend to be understandings of how people, people are, people make decisions, how people feel. And um, I love that you know, that comes easily. Hmm. That's a really um, helpful perspective on that. And I think you are, in my experience, particularly skilled in that arena in a way that's been helpful to me for sure. Um, but but on the flip side, what's challenging for you about being a five? Hmm. If we're talking about right now, because there's definitely been a lot of challenges over the over time. Yeah, either way, you can you can focus on now or explain a little bit of that progression, whatever kind of comes up for you. Okay, this is um this is going to be super nuanced. I don't know if um if other fives will relate or not. And it's it's very vulnerable, but I feel like you're very vulnerable in your all of your work, so you inspire me. <laughs> Thanks. Let's um, go there. So I Yeah, let's. So we can always cut it out later. That's so, right. <laughs> um so I've spoken about this on panels. I feel that t- 
type fives because, you know, as a stereotype, we're quiet. As a stereotype, we're, you know, we keep to ourselves solitude. Because of those stereotypes, I feel that fives do not get called out for their kind of subtle narcissism. Okay, say more. That I have seen, um, yeah, that I've seen in myself and other fives. And it looks very different than what we think of when we think of like an arrogant or narcissistic person. Fives are kind of like tacitly, sometimes tacitly narcissistic, like you know, just expect that others will give them what they need or expect that when they speak, people will listen because they speak so rarely. And if they're not listened to, they get angry. I should say we, not they. (laughs) (laughs) So um, what's hard about being a five for me right now and what I'm working on is addressing these patterns. And for me, that looks like this this kind of thing where you know, I'm so quiet and reflective that when I speak, everyone has to shut up and listen. Well, that's not fair. You know, like maybe they're not in the mood to listen. Maybe they're busy, Maybe you know? Um, so I, I'm really trying to unpack that for myself. And that comes after years of dealing with some of the more commonly um, understood issues of fives, like being, feeling overburdened by people or being secretive, all of those things that I work through. Um so this is just kind of the current one. Yeah, that's really fascinating and a helpful um, look inside of, of that dynamic. Yeah, I hope, I hope to see some other fives kind of like own up to this. And um, our dear friend Madeline, who we also know from our training, said something to me that kind of really stuck. And she said, well, fives have to learn how to be rejected just like anyone else. Mm. And that blew my mind. I was like, what? No, we don't, you know? And um, <laughs> she's completely correct. So, Yeah, that's good because like so much of um, fives feeling energy or engagement of that feeling is attached to uh, your thoughts and your sharing of of those thoughts. So if you do speak or share thoughts or information and it's not received in the way that you might wish it was, or if it is rejected, then that is where a lot of defense can get activated. Is, does that sound right to you? Right. Yes. And the thought is, well, I'm never going to share myself again, you know, screw you. Um, and that is the subtle narcissism I'm talking about. Like this, this avarice that fives have is, is a bit, it's a bit narcissistic. Like I'm going to just hoard everything for myself and you have to kind of like only have me on my terms. Well, that's not, you know, that's not very generous. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, that's good. And that, that generosity or non-attachment is, uh, kind of that higher, essence quality that fives can come into uh, on the other side of that. Exactly. So I think that you speak, I mean, so eloquently, period, but about a couple of aspects of fiveness that have been really helpful for me in understanding fives. And I wonder if we might talk about those for a moment. And Sure. Uh, you referenced secrecy and um, so talking about secrecy as a coping mechanism and how that functions for you, you've been really generous for me um, or generous to me in, 
and helping me understand that. And, and the other thing is your take on withdrawal for fives and that going beyond uh, being just physical withdrawal, that it's, it's more complex than that. It has other layers like verbal withdrawal, I believe is language you used. Mm. So I wonder just if we might talk about those things for a bit. Sure. <clears throat> They're definitely interrelated, secrecy and withdrawal for fives. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So with secrecy, the way I see it is that fives feel safe, the kind of nervous system, um, the way we calm our nervous system or the nervous system reaction to stress. We, we can calm ourselves or feel safe again when we are completely isolated. Okay. And I mean, it would be a whole podcast unto its own to talk about why that is. Um, You know, I think it has to do with, personally, I think it has to do with attachment style. And I think that fives are the classic avoidant attachment style. Mm. Um, But again, that's that's a whole other podcast. Um, So when fives get activated, we feel like, okay, as long as I can get away and get by myself, I can feel better. So, um, so that's where some of the physical withdrawal comes in, some of the, um, the verbal withdrawal or emotional withdrawal comes in. It's kind of like, whatever's happening, let me just get away from it as fast as possible. It's, it's like an animal running away. And secrecy relates to this because if you have secrets from the people you're closest to, then you are isolated from them. Okay. And if they know everything about you and you don't have any secrets, then that's vulnerable, right? Then you feel exposed. Right. So what I've noticed in myself and other fives is that even really healthy fives who have um, made a lot of connections and are not needing as much alone time and things like that, when really stressful times happen, they kind of automatically will start engaging in behaviors that they keep secret from those closest to them. And that makes them feel back in control and makes, I keep saying them instead of us. That's <laughs> it's so, so hard. I do the same thing if I'm talking about force. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. That makes us feel um, back in control. That makes us feel like we have the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes us feel like we're totally isolated again and therefore safe. Gosh, that it makes so much sense when you explain it. And I wonder if even fives, that do this don't have the language for that sometimes? I would say not. I mean, I've been, like I said, I've been studying the Enneagram for 12 years. I've been working on all of this stuff since my my 20s, early 20s. And um, I could never have spoken like this about it until maybe a few years ago, even though I was doing it, of course, all along. Right. Gosh. And I think that that's one of the the best examples of the value of the Enneagram is just offering language to put to these things that we are doing anyway. Um, But when we have language for it, we have more agency over it, more control um, and hopefully the ability to kind of um, change that when we want or need to. Right. Um, Gosh, that, yeah, that's so helpful. I just remember on on the panels uh, when you were talking about verbal withdrawal, just being like a light bulb. Um, Cause just, you know, in conflict with 
fives that I'm close to. Um, it's just, it's some of the most quiet, drawn out <laughs> conflict I've ever been a part of. Um, which luckily I don't, you know, I have patience for long silences usually, but it's a different dynamic than fighting with other types. Yeah, I will say as I've leaned into my eight growth, I am much more of a yeller in conflict now. Nice. And I mean, that feels like a miracle. Like I can just say what I want emphatically in the moment. So I think there's a lot of potential for fives to get there. But yeah, in the past, you know, long withdrawn kind of punishing silences definitely were my main way of engaging in conflict. Mm, punishing silences. Yeah. And can you can you yell and engage like that now and not like immediately panic? right after I can but only with my husband um so I worked on that a lot and he's an eight and like Mm. you live with an eight you basically learn to yell no matter what right (laughs) um but when I even with other people I'm extremely close to my best friend um we just had a conflict a couple months ago we usually have about one big fight per year we say okay and I felt like you know, that the crushing weight on your chest where you feel like you're going to die. Like, I mean, oh. completely panicking. And I, I did actually yell at her in the end and she was very, very pleased that I did. Um, but I thought, you know, this relationship is going to be over now. Oh yeah. And, and it obviously wasn't. It's amazing how the, the thing that we most fear doing in conflict is sometimes exactly what the other person wants from us. Exactly. I'd say that's almost, you know, most of the time true. Yeah. That the things that we think make us unlovable actually are what others are craving from us. So true. So true. Well, I'll uh, I'll get I'll let you off the hot seat for a, f- a few <laughs> minutes here. Thank okay. you for sharing uh, so generously on all of that. Uh, you know that some of the work that I've been doing and continue to do is around the intersections of creativity and the uh, and the enneagram. Yes, I love your work on that stuff. Thank you. I I am excited by your excitement around that lately. <laughs> And I just wonder in that vein, if if you have any thoughts on how you see your Enneagram type affecting your experience of creativity. So both in uh, content or subject matter that you focus on and in your creative process. Sure. So I think content I can speak to more easily. Um, the creative process piece I've just started thinking about um, owing to your work. So, but I'll try speaking to both. So content wise, definitely I'm a writer. Um, I'd say my prime, that's my primary creative outlet. Um, and I'm an essentially, I mean, I'm a researcher and I'm an academic writer, but I'm essentially an observational writer. So like what I express creatively comes from my insights and my observations, which is very five, five like, right. Um, and my kind of love for the medium, you know, grammar, the written word, the way sentences are constructed, that all feels kind of 5 to me, my relationship to it. Mm, I'll, yeah, I'll jump in um, just for a second because I do – I that's something that I teach and emphasize with fives and creativity is that attention to form mm-hmm. and structure and uh, either a, a strict abiding by it or kind of 
breaking form and um, and innovating on it, but either way, still very aware of it. That's fascinating. Which is what it sounds like you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. I've always been really into that that idea of you have to learn the rules before you can break them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That I think they taught us in elementary school. <laughs> um, I love knowing them and I love breaking them. Yes. Yeah, I think there's there's some fiveness in that for sure. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you though. Please. No, no, on. you're fine. Um, in terms of the creative process, I was listening to your hundred days. Um, your your cast on that, and it really spoke to me when you talked about fear. And you talked about this um, reticence fives have to share their work. And I know everyone, you know, every creative person has reticence to share their work. That's that's big for everyone. But for fives, it's, and for me, it seems like it's about this isn't good enough yet. This isn't smart enough yet. If I just work on it for another day, another week, another month, then I'll share it. Right. And um, – and you helped me see that, you know, that's fine, but like what I consider good is maybe what other people consider great or what I consider passingly competent <laughs> might be what other people consider very competent. So um, I'd say that's a big barrier, a big hurdle for me over, over tinkering on things was certainly a big barrier for me in the past. Mm-hmm. I remember I used to write emails um, when I had more of like a regular office job that was a little less creative, I used to write emails and reread them like seven and eight times before I sent them. Yeah. Just making sure there's no errors, you know? And like, that was a waste of my time. Like not that in a bad way, but I could have been doing a whole bunch of other things. So I'd say that's still a problem less so now um, because I have, deadlines and I have a baby and actually having a baby has really helped (laughs) because you can't spend eight hours writing two pages like you just don't have that available yeah I've heard that it um it more efficiently channels your time and energy in that way (laughs) yeah I agree with that big time Mm. well that gosh that makes so much sense and I think tinkering is a great word for fives yeah I've I've heard uh, kind of mental tinkering or cerebral tinkering as a actually part of the withdrawal for fives even, but just in in this application in work and and creative projects that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. Sarah here. Uh, next, I got to ask Sam about this work that she's doing on the enneagram and sexuality or sexual desire. And I asked her uh, how we might help her with that research and how we might uh, follow her online to benefit from the wisdom that, uh, that she's collecting on all of this. So now back to my conversation with Sam Greenberg. What I'm working on is specifically a, a big research study, a fairly large, complex research study on how each Enneagram type influences um, sexual desire, the experience of sexual desire. And um, that's going to be a mixed method study, which means um, numerical data, survey data, and interview data. Okay. And um, 
I'll be recruiting folks to participate in that in about six months here. I'm just kind of finishing up designing the study. It's going to be um, the participation requirements are for people who have already know their type, um, who are very certain of their type, and who have done at least a little bit of training in the Enneagram, so four hours or more of training in the Enneagram. And the reason I'm doing it that way is because um, I don't want people who took like one online pop psychology quiz and they're like, I'm definitely a three, you know? Yeah. So, um, so if you're someone who already knows your type, you feel very confident about your type, um, and you've done some training and you feel comfortable sharing about your sexuality, then you'd be perfect for this project, especially hoping for, you know, folks of traditionally underrepresented voice. Um, if you think that's you, definitely participate. And um, you can follow me on Instagram at anyagasm, anya underscore gasm, E-N-N-E-A underscore G-A-S-M. And I'll post information about um, the project there. And if you have any questions, you can email me at enneagramsexpert at gmail.com. Um, also on over on the Enneagasm Instagram, I'm also posting some videos about some preliminary um, data I've collected on each of the types from, from an informal pilot study that I've done. And you can zip over there and see if the video feels like it reflects your experience of sexuality or not, and let me know your feedback. Awesome. Um, and I, I've really enjoyed following that. And well, first, I, I have to confess that I emailed you at that email a couple of days ago, but I did not read it correctly as Enneagram Sexpert. I read it as Enneagram's Expert. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> well, I, and I should have totally known exactly what it was. My brain just separated it um, differently. So I'm just amused by that over here. Uh, That's hilarious. I'm sure other people will do that too. <laughs> well, and hopefully now having this context, um, it will make sense at least to these people. But um, I wonder if, if we might talk through an example of at least one of the types. I don't want to ask you to go through all nine, but just on on these um, connections of, of Enneagram type with sexuality. Uh, is there a way we could do that? Yes, I would love to. Awesome. Um, and I think it's very interesting that no work has been done on this. I mean, you see Enneagram books and resources about everything, the Enneagram in parenting, the Enneagram in food choices, you know, everything. And there's one book that came out last year on this by Anne Gad, who um, is just kind of basing it on her clinical observations. There's no research that's been done. And that's baffling to me. I mean, sex is such a, a big part of who we are. Right. So I appreciate the chance to do this work and to chat about it um, with your listeners. So um, without going through all nine, like you said, an example of, of how um, sexual, how your ego structure or your type structure plays out in your sexuality. Um, so for type ones, I'm calling that sex as right action. And what that means is that type ones view sex from an ethical perspective. So even, even though the, 
the ethical perspective varies between different type ones, as we know, if you know a couple of different type ones. The type one themselves, they think that their way of viewing sex and ethics is is the way, you know, the right way. And that doesn't mean they're kind of like telling partners like, oh, we must have sex the right way. That's not what I mean at all. Um, but, But they're kind of like the way they incorporate the idea of sex into their worldview is an ethical one. So some type ones might see, um, you know, sex is only within the context of marriage and that's their perspective on sex. Totally different one might say, I think polyamory is the best and most like enlightened way to be a sexual being. And then they think that's the right way. Um, and so they, um, they have this ethical orientation. Another thing about ones is that when they're kind of flirting, they um, they basically are incapable of kind of doing like a look at me, charming, like cutesy, cutesy thing that we see from, say, like threes. Okay. They, um, they have a gut feeling of if the person is for them or not. They know in their body. And um, they often have that inner critic telling them, like, why can't you just be sexy, you know? Why are you being so stodgy, you know, just be sexy. Um, but, of course, they, they can be, you know, wonderful partners. Absolutely. Um, can I do one more? I feel like that might give folks a better idea. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, let's do – should I do fours? Would that be too intense? <laughs> no, go for it. Okay, please. so type fours, um, I say sex as emotional emotional connection. Um, this means that fours relate to sex through their emotions, feeling like emotionally close is important part of desire for fours. And I want to be really careful here about setting up new stereotypes because this is new, new research. Um, that doesn't mean fours have to be totally in love to have sex. That's not what I mean at all. It's, it's that fours want to feel that spark of emotional connection where they feel like the person or people that they're with are reflecting back their kind of deep, meaningful inner world. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes them feel desired, and that's what makes them feel desire. That makes sense. If that makes sense, and um, and kind of intense intensity and dramatic up and down connections can be of of interest sometimes to fours. So if I was giving some advice to fours, I would say watch out for emotional intensity. Um, it's not the same as what's good for you necessarily, even though it might feel the most affirming. Right. No, that makes sense. And definitely, I think there's a, um, or at least personally, um, you know, the difference between sex and sexuality outside the context of marriage versus inside the context of marriage for me with a more kind of steady um, relational context and more of the day-to-day mundanity of just running a house together and, and all of that. Like it's a very, it definitely affects um, sexuality and desire. And it's important to remember that like just extremes are not um, necessarily healthy just because they feel more natural, you know? I know this is your podcast, but can I ask you a question? No, no, please, please. Um, so what 
do you do to kind of like within the context of a committed relationship, like you said, running a house together and all of that, what do you do to kind of help yourself or remind yourself that intensity isn't the only thing that you need to feel desire or how do you help yourself to feel desire? Yeah, that, um, you're, you can absolutely ask the question. I don't know if I can answer it because I'm still figuring that out. Gotcha. I think like, um, what's always been true and what I value so much about my relationship with my husband is that it's one of the only relationships in my life that like, I rarely, if ever question that, uh, that I am loved. And, you know, even no matter what, you know, problems or conflicts or whatever we've had, because of course every relationship has, has those, um, it's never been because I've questioned whether or not I am loved and seen and mostly understood. And so reminding myself of the rarity of that and how grateful I am for that and, you know, that being actually a reason that I chose this relationship versus more high drama ones that I have had in the past um, is centering at at least and, and certainly helps. Um, But I mean, just the mundanity of life, like related to sexuality or or not, like it's just hard and and is hard for both of us in this household because there's a lot of four energy. (laughs) Um, Right. So it's just so hard, you know, after a whole day of like dishes and cleaning and work and, bills and calls and all, you know, it's just, it's hard to kind of maintain everything. And I am hopefully learning little by little how to do that better, but we should talk more because I bet you could, um, you would have some insight on that. that would be <laughs> I, probably, valuable. Um, I think fours definitely can be leading the charge on that. Like what I think is a universal experience for people who are in committed relationships where they're, um, they're running households together, raising children together. I feel like that's an, an issue for most people, but that fours can kind of lead the charge on helping us figure out how to address it. So hopefully we'll see all of this work develop more over the coming couple of years. Mm, I love that. That's even helpful in and of itself to be reminded, like it's actually kind of a universal or, or uh, a widespread experience, but perhaps... Yeah working on it could benefit others as well. I think for sure, yeah. Gosh, Sam, um, you're so wise and well-spoken. <laughs> and I, we should we should tell folks that, you know, this is one conversation, but we are hoping to and planning to have plenty more conversations in the future, um, p- potentially in the form of a podcast and um, I'm just, you know, I guess this was a trial run, so right, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm feeling good, but we'll we'll debrief and see how you're feeling. But um, I hope that I hope this is one of many more to come. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. I love this project. It's such an honor to be a part of it. Uh, thank you. Well, um, I will remind folks in the outro of that um, of your Instagram account, and your email address, and. Uh, we'll send them your way online and I just can't thank you enough for your time and I can't wait to do more of this. Perfect. Me too. Thanks so much.
All right. Thanks, Sam. Bye. Bye. Okay. What a conversation. I hope you all enjoyed and benefited from that uh, as much as I did. Don't forget, uh, if you want to contact Sam uh, for any reason or to offer your participation in uh, her research study, you can email her at enneagramsexpert at gmail.com, enneagramsexpert at gmail.com, and make sure to follow along on Instagram at ennea underscore gasm. So that's at E-N-N-E-A underscore G-A-S-M. And I will, of course, have a link to that email and to that Instagram account in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I will be back with more uh, very soon. Take care.